welcome back to Clara Partners Digital Selves podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Clara Partners is an international business innovation and service design firm, helping corporations and startups around the world to navigate the constant disruptions occurring and to make sense of their impact on customer behaviours and expectations for your products and services. I'm Sarika Robin, and I have a background in anthropology and behavioural research. Today, I'm joined first by Cyril Mori, director at Claro, whose background is in political science and business strategy, and second by Rich Radka, founding partner, who's led teams of social scientists, designers, and business strategists for over 20 years. This is the second podcast in a series of three, following the last episode where we introduced the basic concept of digital selves and their impact in the workplace. We also referred to an interview we conducted with Michael Schrage. So in this episode, we need to step back a little bit from discussing how digital selves will change the world around us to look at the invisible enablers of this new world that kind of are below the surface. So this is really a necessary dis- uh, digression that we need to take before we can explore the real world applications and specifically talk about what you and your business can do today in, in practical terms to carve out your opportunity spaces, which is what we'll do in our third and final episode next. So just as a refresher, what are the digital selves? So digital selves are digital agents that will provide hyper-personalized advice based on analyzing the constant stream of data one produces. In a sense, the digital self is an evolution of the concept of digital identity, but with a key shift from a passive to an active entity, one that is able to advise and even act on one's behalf. Um, for this episode, we interviewed Tyler Reigelut, a researcher at the philosophy department of the Université Libre of Brussels. Tyler's research is focused on understanding how technology and recommendation systems are influencing people's behaviors and attitudes. So this episode, as Rich started to say, will focus more on the impact of the digital selves on people's lives from a behavioral lens. We will question the role of algorithms and recommendation agents on the very fabric of society. We will also step back a little bit from the digital selves per se and talk about the underlying technological mechanisms that will make these digital selves work for people. As we will see, many of the tensions inherent to digital selves are already at play when we think of simpler technology solutions we are all using today. So we will ask a lot of questions, but maybe there won't be as many answers as you would expect. We are hoping that these questions will, however, stick with you and make you think. To give a little bit of context, technology is a ubiquitous and constant element of our daily lives. And through our engagement with it, we're actively interacting with algorithms, from Google searches, to watching films on Netflix, to swiping right on Tinder to find someone to date, and to getting suggestions from ways on the best route to take when you're driving. We know algorithms are influencing decisions all around us, but the majority of us don't know how they work or how exactly our behavior and attitudes are being influenced by them. If you log onto Amazon just now and put a book in your shopping basket, you're likely to see the words frequently bought together with a list of other books that Amazon thinks you'll enjoy. This recommendation is the product of an algorithm. It carefully analyzes your past preferences as well as the preferences of others, generating suggestions for you when you browse online. Now, this is just one common example of our interactions with algorithms, but we can think of countless other cases that we encounter in our daily lives, like Spotify offering you personalized music recommendations or finance apps offering you advice that's tailored to your needs. The reality is that what people think are their decisions are in fact partly determined by services. 
Algorithms are like a black box. We know they're functioning silently in the background, but we don't quite know how they're influencing our behavior. In the same way that people's behavior has been influenced over time, through advertising, marketing, and tools of propaganda, algorithm-influenced behavior is the new norm. As Sarika as showed, we are already witnessing the early signs of digital selves. So today we will talk about both the present, what challenges are inherent to receiving advice and suggestions from technological solutions, and the near future, how these challenges will be amplified when we think of full-on, ever-present digital selves advising people in their daily lives. Within that scope, the core of what we'll discuss is the relationship between recommendation systems, including digital selves, and people. And more specifically, how are these services influencing, modifying people's behaviors? What we mean by this is not only the fact that people are influenced by the recommendation, recommendation given to them, that is, if you like that movie, you will like that other movie, but also the fact that the existence of a particular technical solution does change people's behavior. To give you a concrete example, the very fact that I know I can use Google Maps completely changes the way I experience a city, the way I orient myself. And this is much more significant than the recommendation itself. Now what we believe, and this is also central to Tyler's research, is that more often than not, people do not have the visibility or awareness that their behaviours and expectations are actually being shaped or changed by these very services. So we're not saying that this is inherently good or bad, rather what we're saying is that it is important to be aware of the fact that your behaviour is being modified, or at least influenced to some degree, by technology. Here's Tyler on this. What, what sort of what worries me sometimes is the idea that companies think that they can deploy um, technical solutions to meet users' needs or wants as if those needs and wants are themselves not partly shaped by the very presence of that technical, that technical device. Mm -hmm. And um, so it sort of, you know, makes people's needs and wants very sort of seem very natural and um, as if they existed by themselves without taking into account that, you know, uh, a user who's on YouTube doesn't necessarily have uh, preconceived uh, needs or wants, or rather those needs and wants are continually being transformed by the fact that he or she is using YouTube and um, is discovering new possibilities, is discovering new uh, songs, new artists, et cetera, et cetera. Companies then play a key role in transforming behavior. But you might be thinking, well, that's a social science problem, and it seems fairly remote from my business challenges, but we don't think so. And so here's the deal. As populations of people, we generally don't understand how underlying technologies work. For example, algorithms, recommendation engines. So, Cyril, do you understand how algorithms work? I do not. Sarika? No, I don't. Okay, that makes three of us who really don't understand. We kind of take them on faith. Uh, we're more focused on the, the convenience they give us than understanding the intention behind them. So how were they designed? What were the baseline assumptions? What choices were made along the way? And were these well thought out by the programmers, by the designers? Or did someone just decide that a key element of the service is based on what's fastest for him or her to produce? what produced the most elegant code or allowed them to reuse a code module in some way, rather than thinking about what is actually going to get people to the most important outcomes in their private lives, what is going to be more convenient and useful to people. So there's no transparency to these types of technological helpers. We kind of just have to accept them, hope the intentions of the companies providing them is 
not evil, or opt out of potentially rich enhancements of our lives through using these tools. But could this inability to understand how algorithms or recommendation engines work change in the future? For example, through providing greater transparency in the structure and design of these enablers themselves, through some sort of certification by advocacy groups or third parties, by open platforms that makes it a lot harder to hide the intent and the way things are engineered, or by regulation through government bodies. In any of these cases, um, you know, is there a way for us to have a, a greater understanding of, of really how things work? And why am I even posing this question? Why is it important? Because we want to expose our bias here as Claro Partners that we help companies deeply empathize with people, with their customers, to find win-win solutions and avoid unequitable dynamics because we don't believe those are sustainable. Especially at inflection points like going mobile, like conversational interfaces, like robotics, like digital selves, customers are open to rewiring their behaviors. They're open to do, doing things in new ways opening new relationships with new companies, new institutions, new brands at these moments of great change. And the companies that help people navigate these transitions best, that is, to help people reach their goals, to provide services to these people that really fit their needs and values, are the ones that are going to win. So here you really need to understand this tension between this desire for convenience and the underlying basic human need to understand how things in our lives work. And the company's business models, motivations, and intentions that are behind these services. So when we think of companies that are designing services that will give recommendation to people, we identified two main challenges for them to tackle. So the first challenge is a business challenge. We think that being aware of how your service changes people's behavior is key to anticipating changing customer needs. For instance, we need to think about what happens if customers start to question the very value your service brings. So the challenge is that if you as a company do not ask yourself these hard questions, that is how is the behavior of the users of our product being modified, then you're starting to forget that in the end you only exist because you provide the best value to users in a specific field. And again, nowadays you can't build a sustainable business if you don't create long-lasting positive change for your customers, something that's measurable, something that they can sense. If you focus only on the short term, it's not going to create a viable business. Yes, you might get rich for a short period of time, but then you'll be a footnote in history. It's too easy for people to get information and to see through these kinds of ruses. To some extent, there is a risk that if you don't interrogate these issues, then users might realize this and cease to use your service. And while this might seem remote to you as a possibility, it isn't. To give you an example, this is already happening with social networks. At Claro, we recently delivered a research project across five markets where we saw firsthand that the younger generations are unsettled by how social media is shaping their behaviours. We're getting to a point where large numbers of people are recognising that using social networks is not an equitable value exchange, given the opacity of what companies are really doing with their data. The result then is that many individuals from this generation are actually leaving social networks in droves. We feel that businesses need to be aware of the behaviors that they modified in their users in order to be able to change their own strategy in time. Put differently, companies need to be able to anticipate and rethink their strategies at the right moment. The second challenge for companies is how to strike the right balance between convenience and control. 
at the heart of this problem, you have a paradox. And the paradox is this one. The more convenient a service is, the less you're allowing a user to be aware that he's using that service. Um, so what do we mean by this idea of, of convenience? Well, convenience, first of all, can mean seamless. A service can be intentionally designed to create an experience which is seamless, which has no pauses, no way for the user, for the user to step out of it. An interesting analogy is a casino. We all know that in Vegas, uh, in casinos, you have no clocks and you have no way to see the natural light. That is intentionally designed to prevent people to be able to step out, to stop the flow of their experience. You might think that this example is extreme, and it is, and you might think that it's remote from the digital world, which we're talking about, but it isn't. I can take another example closer to the digital world that uh, will make this concept more apparent to you. Uh, at some point, Netflix designed a UX that was so seamless that people binged watch shows for hours because there was no pause between one show and the next. It was actually so successful that Netflix had to roll it back and build pop-up messages every four episodes to ask people, are you sure you want to continue watching or not? This is a typical example, a mechanism that creates friction intentionally in order to let the user the chance, the option, to step out of the experience flow. This shows us that it is not always the case that a more seamless experience is better. You sometimes need to create intentionally some friction in the experience to let the user make an informed choice about what is best for himself. Another meaning of convenience is simple. A service can be designed as a black box, as Sarika mentioned, not letting people know or see or understand how it works, how it is making decisions. In a sense, you're sparing people, sparing users the complexity. You're building a simple convenience service. Again, this has its limits. The most obvious example of this is Facebook, the Facebook feed. Uh, people are annoyed by the fact that they don't understand or even know why some news are getting prioritized in their feed. This led to the creation of additional plugins that you can put on your Facebook and then you can use them to unfilter the ranking of the newsfeed and instead show things in chronological order. This shows the case that sometimes some complexity, some form of control uh, is needed. So you need to find that, ba that balance between convenience and simplicity. So now in both of these cases, this tension of convenience of seamlessness, which is also can be covering up a lack of control, and simplicity, which means that we may be making very heavy choices that don't really fit the, the nuance and complexity of our real lives, can, can lead to anxiety and frustration. And you might be able to engineer an experience that is addictive in the short term, but in the long term does not have a long shelf life. Um, we believe at Claro that we need to design services that empower people, not disempower them. And this is a couple examples of that. You know, if you want to be a good partner and create a sustainable business, you need to really understand how to empower people. Um, you need to give them the possibility to act and to make choice they can truly understand and at moments that are meaningful to them. Not all choice is equal, so these have to be meaningful choices within the context of their lives. So you need to strike this balance between the abundance of choice, which is overwhelming, and the absence of choice, which feels and is disempowering. Um, Well-designed recommendation solutions or services are empowering users by helping them navigate complexity. They're striking this correct balance between convenience and control. So in a sense, what we need to rethink is what user-friendly actually means. 
this is very much something that Tyler has worked on as well. And he says the following about it. What I see as a potential sort of problem or risk is that everything is done in algorithmic design to make these platforms as user-friendly as possible. But what we mean as what they usually mean by user-friendly is to make them as uh, almost that the user should be able to see right through the application, uh, as if the application uh, were not present and were not um, disturbing their activity. But when we have uh, complex technologies that are using you know, behavioral uh, data to predict our behaviors and to influence our behaviors, and then on, on top of that, those predictions and those, uh, the way we influence those behaviors are then monetized and uh, a source of revenue for large platforms, I don't think we can simply say, Act as if, act as if you are not using the platform. This is something Google uh, loves to say: is act naturally. Don't take, don't think about us when you're when you're using Google. Just act as if you would, uh, as you would act normally. Um, and to me, that is that is a, as a problem as we move forward and and these uh, platforms become uh, you know ever more present, ever more uh, powerful in our daily lives. The question is, how can we reconcile these two understandings of convenience and resolve the underlying tension around modified behaviours? Broadly speaking, we can ask, what does it mean to design services? Our view is that we need to go beyond the conception of user-friendliness and visibility, as transparency is not necessarily beneficial. The reason being that if you design something that is user-friendly, you don't necessarily help the user realise that her behaviour is actually being shaped by the very service she's using. At some point, this might hurt your business. So the concept user-friendly is more complex than just being about transparency. Perhaps companies in the future could aim at being user-friendly as well as user-supportive, or indeed user-attentive. From our perspective at Claro, we feel that the key business implication here is that companies will need to try and find the optimal space between transparency and control in order to retain their customers and stay relevant. Let's hear from Tyler on this. And I think the possibility for the user to interact with um, the device and not only use the device as a tool to be doing something else, but also to directly interact with, uh, it could be the code, it could be the, the interface, it could be uh, all sorts of things that are related to you know, the different levels of the application or the device. Um, but leaving that possibility open for the user to engage with and reshape and uh, maybe repurpose certain aspects of the application. So I think, yeah, there's a double sort of tension around the idea of transparency there. On the one hand, technology used as making society, making collective behaviors more transparent, and on the other hand, uh, those technologies themselves becoming less and less transparent. You know, uh, the, the problem with transparency, and there's an there's a excellent paper by uh, Crawford and Anani about this, is that it also puts a lot of onus and a lot of burden on the individual. Um, and it's sort of, you know, the, the, uh, sort of the, the dice are, are <laughs> the die are loaded uh, ahead of time when you have an individual uh, versus uh, Facebook or an individual versus uh, YouTube. Um, question whether Facebook or YouTube makes their process more transparent. Ultimately, um, it's sort of an ethical whitewashing of the question because the user, the individual user, is ill-placed to be able to understand uh, by him or herself, uh, even if the process is made transparent, the individual's ill-placed to understand um, the implications. So if we project ourselves in the near future, what does this all mean for digital selves? 
as we're seeing, the fairly simple solutions giving us recommendations we are using today should already force both their creators and users to step back and think of how they modify behaviors or create new needs. Are they empowering people or are they cheaping away people's agency? So imagine the near future when we will have agents constantly giving us advice on every choice we make, from whom we date, to, who, to whom we meet, to where we should walk, what we should buy. If you think of a context where potentially all of our actions and decisions will be nudged, you have to question who designed these nudges and with what effects on the very fabric of society and social interactions. As Cyril indicated, we can think of two examples of the tensions that arise from digital selves in practical terms. Firstly, we could have the example of a so-called neutral company that's designing for transparency but doesn't realise it's influencing people's behaviours. In this case, the company doesn't probe into what kinds of behavioural changes it's creating. The second example is more complex. Here we can think of companies that intentionally transform or maximise certain behaviours, usually through more deceptive means. So in order to flesh out this second example, I'm going to get into some social science theory here. So on a general level, Decisions are influenced by the environment in which the choices are presented. So presenting choices in certain ways can nudge people to change their behaviour. This concept of nudging is from behavioural economics, and it looks at how an individual's environment, or what we can call the choice architecture, can influence individuals to act in ways that are counter to their usual preferences, while still retaining their freedom of choice. Nudges are now commonplace in digital environments, with more and more individuals using apps and programmes online. In this new environment, UX designers and software engineers are the choice architects behind people's decisions. So this is where we get to the crux of the tension with these sorts of techniques being harnessed by large companies, such as Uber, which use nudges to influence drivers to work for longer. So when drivers would try to log off from the app, they would receive targeted messages such as, you're $5 away from your $15 target, in order to persuade them to keep driving and meet a goal. Both Uber and its competitor Lyft also use a forward dispatch technique, essentially forwarding a new ride to a driver before the current one ends. In the process, drivers work longer and their decision making is overridden by the app. While these may seem like innocuous recommendations, in these examples the choice architecture is actually at odds with human agency by influencing drivers to work longer against their natural inclinations. So when we think back to our discussion on digital selves, we can speculate as to whether these digital agents would nudge us in ways that are contrary to our well-being. More insidiously, perhaps these agents would be influencing our behaviour according to the interests of the company that actually owns the service. This is something that is actually central to Tyler's work. And the other question is, who do they serve in the sense that who is profiting um, by their deployment? And, you know, we, you, you can never just ignore or neglect the question of who makes money off of um, uh, these applications, who is ultimately um, uh, making money and, and, uh, and, and in a way controlling also uh, the, the, uh, the, the application and its uses. The question then is, what are the mechanisms that need to be put into place in order for digital selves to work? If we link back to Tyler's work, in the context of digital selves, it would seem that the more something seems transparent or seamless, the less ability people have to question the digital selves. Arguably, we cannot simply build a transparent digital self, that is, one that only gives you recommendations. Instead, we require a digital self that shows you how it provides you with those very recommendations and gives you the, gives you the space to interact or engage with it. As we grow increasingly dependent on, these, um, uh, on the presence and on the capabilities and agency 
uh, of these uh, devices, are we not losing certain capabilities and forms of agency ourselves? So I'm not so much worried that machines will become our masters or will become you know so powerful that they wind up taking over or <laughs> any of those kind of scenarios, but rather that we simply fall into sort of um, patterns of sort of pure habit and pure uh, repetition or pure just sort of following uh, nudges, following, you know, um, um, behavioral um, predictions that have been laid out for us. And um, that's, that's why, to me, the idea that you have to be able to engage with and act upon the device itself is uh, central in the sense that it, it maintains the possibility that, again, the, um, the, the presence of the technical device is not simply seen as a tool to, to meet an ends, um, but as a means to an ends, but it's also seen as the end itself, as that upon which uh, the user can engage with in a social interaction, because that's what we're going to be uh, faced with in the, in the near futures. And I think what Tyler says here kind of really underlies this tension of who's going to own these digital selves. And we've had you know very healthy discussions here at Claro about this. On one side, we see this drive to companies creating bigger and bigger global platforms and feeling that that's the way for success. But this is in diametrical opposition of providing agency to the individual. And when we talk about a digital self, it is tantamount for this to be successful, that it is actually of the self and not a foreign agent within my life. Um, just recently, Tim Berners-Lee has put forward um, this new initiative called SOLID that will put the control of data and the access of that data back into the hands of the individual. This trend could take hold and could be key in deciding how digital selves ecosystem evolves or doesn't. So as a business, you can be in denial about the fact that the power or the control will most likely return to the hands of the individual. You can lobby against it, or you can be practical and realize this new constraint is in people's best interests. And it also represents a specific business opportunity to those companies who quickly grasp this shift and act on it to provide what people need. From our perspective at Claro, we think that we can resolve these tensions of, for instance, convenience versus control by understanding people. For example, what are the key goals they wish to fulfill and what are the potential inconsistencies that underlie them? So we can design these digital selves or helpful agents, if you will, intentionally. But mostly, we need to remember that understanding people also means knowing that there is often a fundamental gap between people's intentions and their behavior. We think we behave in a certain way, but our actions don't always reflect that. Put differently, we're often more influenced by our system one, that's our unconscious mind, than by our system two, our conscious deliberative mind. So through deeply understanding people's needs and by understanding the biases that shape system one thinking, we can better understand how to empower users in their interactions with technology. Let's hear from Tyler. Everything that is being done uh, in algorithmic design around, uh, again, around social behaviors. I'm not talking about, you know, climate change prediction or, you know, uh, environmental models, etc. But um, in the prediction and analysis of, of human and social behaviors, uh, it is entirely human-centered. Um, the question is rather what possibilities are uh, allowed within those uh, technical setups and apparatuses, what possibilities are allowed 
for uh, the, the you know the normal course of things to be disrupted. And I think as you know we integrate these technologies into our daily habits and routines more and more, I think one of the uh, challenges to me at least is to allow users the possibility to uh, to interrupt the course of the activity and to make the um, to 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 allow the user to directly engage with the technical the technical apparatus. The key here is that we need to explore how we can integrate human-centered design into technological services, as well as identify possibilities for disruption, that is breaks and pauses, where users are able to reclaim control. By applying a human-centered lens onto technology, we're able to build better services and view human behavior and technology as part of a mutually constitutive process. There is nothing about technology that is inhuman or not human, that everything we do uh, with technology is inherently human um, and has to do with, uh, you know, our humanity. And so the idea then that we could observe human behaviors or social behaviors with technology as though that technology were not part of the very process it was observing, uh, to me, seems misguided. And uh, to me, that seems one of the, the sort of the challenge. I think maybe that sort of come through in, in, in our discussion here is that uh, we need to start thinking about uh, technical applications and devices as part of the social interaction they are used to uh, analyze and predict and observe. So then we think, Claro, the question to ask is what is the right level or lens for human-centered design on these issues? You can optimize the design for humans of products and services that are not in their best interest financially, physically, emotionally, or intellectually, but that is really turning human-centered design into a lie. Or we can apply it at the highest levels when you identify real human needs and problems worth solving and make sure the value propositions are good for people, good for the world around us, and then continue with people who understand people's psychology, understand people's choice architectures and what they need out of any experience and make sure that is being built into the products, the technologies that are being designed for them. So really in this episode, we looked at the digital self from societal and an ethical standpoint, but we do hope that it helped you inform your business perspective as well. In the next episode with Kristen Gonzalez, who's a director at IBM, we'll go back to a more traditional business stance and we'll start to identify what you can start to do today in order to prepare for a digital self's future. Thanks for listening.